This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Biologies refuse. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this case. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to a special episode of The Wigs. I'm Jim Means. This episode was recorded live at the 2022 Reasonable Cause Conference. Each year, the conference provides continued professional development units for hundreds of criminal lawyers. It is run by Mark Dennis SC. All proceeds go to Reasonable Cause Incorporated to assist disadvantaged young Cambodians further their education. For more information, head to rccharity.net.au. The Wigs were invited to talk on the topics of policing the prosecutor, prosecutorial ethics for criminal lawyers. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everyone. It's uh, lovely to be here. We're on to the topic of the day, which is policing the prosecutors, ethics for criminal lawyers. In this topic, we will delve into the special ethical and professional rules that apply to prosecutors and some general ethical rules that have particular application when it comes to prosecutors. Throughout, the Whigs will tackle how to police the prosecutor, how defence lawyers uh, should and can respond to prosecutorial, prosecutorial misconduct, shortcomings, and how can the ethical standards and obligations of prosecutors be enforced in the course of litigation? Um, Now, before we begin also, I was told by Mark that there would be some canned laughter to help in any jokes that don't land. I just want to give that a test if we could. Okay, that's obviously not up and running just yet, but we'll we'll work on that one in in the meantime. Let's just start off the show with our, our first guest, which is Felicity Graham. Please take it away, Flick. Yeah, so we're going to talk about some of the professional rules that feature in the legal profession barristers' conduct rules. They're mirrored in a lot of the solicitors' rules. And then talk about some of the overarching principles that emerge from the common law specific to prosecutors. Perhaps the number one overarching Mm. rule that we should start with is in Rule 83, in the bar rules, and it's headed prosecutor's duties, so it's sort of a pretty headline rule. And immediately we see from the rule that there are some really key principles, key concepts that come out. Fairness, assisting the court, including on the law, including where the application of the law in a particular case might warrant, for example, exclusion of otherwise inculpatory evidence, impartiality, Um, and the whole of the relevant evidence being presented, which must include exculpatory evidence. And I think one thing to bear in mind at the outset Mm. is that any specific obligation that attaches to a prosecutor by way of their very special role should really be understood not as some standalone obligation or rule but as part of an aspect of the prosecutor's broader obligations as a Minister of Justice playing that special and refined role in the criminal justice process. And the role of prosecutors have been commented on in many cases. Um, Canadian case of vouchers, quite a useful one to have in your back pocket. Um, There are things that have been said which really rung um, for me, which was really highlighting the specialised and demanding role that a prosecutor plays, the features of which need to be clearly recognised and understood, and importantly, that it's a role that's not easily assimilated by all legal practitioners schooled in an adversarial environment. 
So this idea of winning and losing isn't a concept that should be one um, familiar or it's familiar in the courtroom environment, that adversarial environment, but it shouldn't be one adopted by a prosecutor. Yeah. I think <coughs> I think it's important to note that so obviously you've got the special rules in the in the various in the bar rules and in the solicitors rules that apply to prosecutors, but they're also lawyers and so they're covered by the more general rules. And I think by focusing on prosecutors as prosecutors we can forget that they're bound by the same ethical rules that we are. Um, that includes, for example, in the barristers' rules, and this again, this, we're going to refer to the barristers' rule, but the solicitors have the same rules. Um, rule 64 and 65, you can't allege, any lawyer can't allege a matter of fact or make a submission or make an opening um, or a closing address unless you believe on reasonable grounds that the factual material gives you a proper basis to put it. Um, you can't make an allegation of fraud, misconduct, crime, um, unless there's the available material gives you a proper basis to do it and your client is appraised of how serious a step that is, which I suppose in the case of the DPP being the client, they are appraised of it. It's not that well known, that rule, I don't think, that you've got to actually tell your client the consequences of alleging something unsuccessfully. I sort of wonder how yeah. often that's actually complied with in practice. But. Yeah, it's probably more honoured in the breach. Mm. Um, but this gives rise to some interesting things. For example, if you've got a Crown Prosecutor who gives an advice to the Director of Public Prosecution saying, look, this isn't up to snuff, there's, there's not enough evidence to prove this case, um, and who hasn't been in that situation, only to have the Director's Chambers... Um, and this director's chambers idea is this wonderful idea which you, I'm sure you all know about where you've got this salaried Crown Prosecutor with years of experience who's deeply involved in the case, who gives a formal advice that's reviewed by some young solicitor who knows nothing about the matter. Um, and then it goes up and the director says, run it. Now, if a Crown Prosecutor has expressed the view that there's no basis for that charge, they should be returning the brief they are not ethically permitted to continue in those circumstances. And even where their opinion hasn't gone that far, there's Rule 105, I think, 105G. Rule 105G states that a barrister may return a brief if the barrister's advice as to the preparation or conduct of the case, not including its compromise, has been rejected or ignored by the instructing solicitor or the client, as the case may be. Now, I know that, I know several prosecutors from the private bar who've returned briefs in circumstances like that or where they've given advice, but one rarely sees it with Crown prosecutors. So it's worth just keeping that in the back of your mind when you're talking with the Crowns and, and prosecutors and even, um, I mean, to a lesser extent, police prosecutors, but there really is, if they've formed a view that they shouldn't be running the matter or the matter doesn't have legs, then they shouldn't be running it and, and you should keep at them about that, I think. Yeah, so another one of the uh, prosecution-specific bar rules, which I think would also be replicated in the solicitor rules, is Rule 84, which says that a prosecutor must not press their case for a conviction beyond a full and firm presentation of that case. I think that's kind of interesting in this sense, that it's suggesting that there's, there's a different standard applicable to prosecutors in the way that they can permissibly advance their case it limits them to a full and firm presentation 
um, of that case, which would seem to suggest that, for example, the person um, in the role of defence counsel can go beyond that. Uh, there's obviously limits on what any lawyer can do, and Manny's talked a bit about that in terms of things must have a basis in the evidence and so forth. But it would seem to create a meaningful distinction between what is the full, full and robust presentation uh, that's allowable um, of defence counsel, and then this concept of full and firm. Um, and obviously the case law kind of speaks to that. There's a good CCA case of Livermore from 2006, which gives examples of the prosecutor not just expressing personal opinions, but using rhetorical devices um, and metaphors in quite a disparaging way. So that's, I think, an example of going beyond a full and firm presentation. It's also interesting, I think, to think about the reasons behind these rules. And I think it might go back to, at least in part, the special power and authority of the prosecutor. And people here that are defence lawyers will understand well uh, that a prosecutor, just by virtue of their role, their relationship to the community and the state, has this special vibe and authority in the courtroom. I imagine in front of juries that's particularly so. So I think this construct of limiting them to only a full and firm presentation is pretty important, but it involves a lot of these sort of grey lines that a lot of the implementation of ethical rules does. But it's something to think about in terms of if you're doing a case and the prosecutor's doing their closing address or their questioning, whatever, and they're going beyond what you think is a full and firm presentation, um, maybe using some of the mechanisms that we'll talk about, I think, later in the presentation about how to restrain that. Great. Okay, <coughs> let's move on. Disclosure. Yeah, just before we jump into that, I Please. think maybe it's worth just mentioning some of those mechanisms that you might have available to you if you think that the prosecutor is going overboard. So you could ask the prosecutor to withdraw their submission. Mm. You could ask the judge to require the prosecutor to withdraw the submission. You could ask the judge to give a direction to the jury about it or a direction to themselves about it if it's a judge alone trial. And look, depending on the nature and gravity of the breach, you can ask for a discharge. And that's a feature of some of the cases that we'll talk about when um, <coughs> there's been this prosecutorial misconduct or something's gone awry, in the, particularly in the closing address stage mm. of a trial, um, where you can imagine everyone's wanting to hold the trial together and, and get it to um, a final outcome, but it's important to make sure that there's not a miscarriage of justice happening by virtue of that interest in finality. Mm. Yeah, I think this idea of like you know these ethical rules and 84 is a prime example. There's just so many greys that you do need to, I think, kind of think fairly carefully before you start throwing around accusations of breaches of bar rules or solicitors' rules and so forth. And you know the nature of the adversarial system is that we're all coming from opposite directions. Uh, the subject matter is really serious. Our client, whether it's the state or an individual, has a huge stake in it. We tend to get into our sort of tunnel vision. So, yeah, like before you start throwing around breaches of these rules, particularly in open court, probably worth having a think about it, maybe speak to a colleague, I think, often. Um, and a quiet word is always good, I think, before you sort of launch the full missile in open court. <laughs> it's I'm a sure I've reached that rule myself in the past. <laughs> it's a breach of the rules, of course, to sort of seriously allege a breach of the rules. <laughs> so you've got to be careful of that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're going to move on. Sorry, noting, sorry, Jim. Yeah, go ahead. That 
you know, we're going to be talking about these <coughs> professional rules um, that are legislated, that are binding on all of us as legal practitioners. And they do express a really concrete statement of what are minimum standards for ethical conduct as a solicitor or barrister and specifically in the role of a prosecutor. And a breach of them can amount to professional misconduct <coughs> or unsatisfactory professional conduct. But even if there is <coughs> compliance with those minimum standards, that's not the end of the question of whether the prosecutor is acting ethically and fairly according to the standard which um, they should apply. So I think we need to keep in the back of our minds that there are these broader principles that often play out and some different fact scenarios that aren't necessarily caught by a specific rule in the barrister's rules or the solicitor's rules. And of course, let's face it, many of the prosecutors in this state are not legal practitioners at all because they're police officers. 95%, over 95% of criminal matters are prosecuted before a magistrate in the local court without a lawyer are prosecuting, uh, so we need to be able to resort to those common law principles about fairness and about the role of a prosecutor and the, the standards that they should be held to. Mm. One of the topics that the show, for those who are familiar with our podcast, has touched upon uh, quite vehemently is the disclosure, uh, lack thereof in, in a lot of cases. Steve, moving to you, mm. um, can you take us through some of the key rules that apply here? Uh, and how police prosecutors you know, can get caught in the ethical duty of disclosure, excuse me. Yeah, so the disclosure rule or obligation has a whole variety of sources to it. So I think fundamentally it's a common law obligation that a prosecutor owes to the court. And there was a recent case or fairly recent case of Chibley. Uh, is that right, Chibley? Harley, Bradley and Chilby. Sorry, Chilby, yeah. uh, that Felicity appeared in, which has got a really good statement um, of those common law obligations. Then there's um, also other sources. Uh, for example, the DPP guidelines have got a specific guideline on disclosure. Then there's a range um, of statutory provisions, and people are probably familiar with Section 15A of the DPP Act, as well as this sort of interlocking provisions in the Criminal Procedure Act that in some total require the police to disclose anything to the Crown that could be of assistance to the Crown um, or to the accused. And then the DPP has got an obligation, I think, under the Criminal Procedure Act to disclose all relevant mate all, all material in their possession that could be relevant to uh, the accused. There's also a couple of interesting things in the bar rules which, on one interpretation, go a bit further than the common law. Uh, so, for example, there's a bar rule that requires counsel appearing as a prosecutor, and that's replicated again in the solicitor's rules, I think, to disclose anything that could assist the case for the accused that um, is known uh, to the prosecutor. So this distinction that is relied upon a lot, both by the Crown and the police prosecutors, between knowing and having would not seem to be recognised by the bar rules. It's not endorsed at all in the DPP guideline. Uh, so, for example, if you are disclosed a criminal record that has an entry on it that would seem to be relevant, it is not viable in light of those rules for the prosecutor to say, well, I've given you everything I have, uh, because, of course, if there is a relevant entry on a criminal record, then the prosecutor will know that there will be relevant material in the possession of the police, and that's going to include things like the statement of facts from that matter, any witness statements from that matter, 
any things that the accused in that matter said to the police. It's going to be a whole range of things, the cops events, entries, all of those things um, are known to exist in circumstances where a criminal conviction exists. So yeah, there's this really onerous obligation. It's on prosecutors, whether they're police um, or Crown prosecutors or solicitors, to disclose everything that um, might reasonably be thought to assist the case for them or for the accused. But you know, like all of this stuff, there's a lot of grey areas in it, and there's a lot of ways for prosecutors to sort of put up what are often pretty specious arguments, for example, not having things in their possession. Uh, so get on top of the detail, um, I would suggest, of those rules and obligations and be in a position uh, to raise it. It's entirely appropriate, I would say, in the context of disclosure to raise a failure to disclose in open court because it's an obligation owed to the court. And, you know, I've often found, particularly um, in my ALS days, when you know, going to the sort of extent of issuing subpoenas well in advance of hearings is just not always going to happen realistically, that um, a good solution to a lack of disclosure is to stand up um, on the morning of the hearing, if need be, and complain very loudly about a failure to disclose. And it's amazing how much it focuses, uh, particularly police prosecutors, on their obligations when you get the court on board. Yeah, and I think that issue of knowledge or that concept of knowledge is one to really dig into because a prosecutor might not personally know about a particular document that exists in the possession of the police. But this distinction between the police um, as the investigative agency and the DPP as the prosecuting agency is an illusory one and not one recognised in the common law principles. So if the police have a document, a cop entry, a witness's criminal history, um, you know, some document relevant to how they took your client's DNA or whatever it might be, then the knowledge is imputed to the prosecuting agency. So there's no... Whilst in practice the DPP lawyer might be able to say to you, look, I don't have the document and I don't know if it exists or not, that's not a good enough answer. So I think it's really important to kind of dig into um, the detail of what the law expects on this and, and hold your colleagues to account. Yeah, the, the, the text of the rule itself says you know, relevant material uh, available to the prosecutor or of which the prosecutor becomes aware, which means on the face of it, it's not necessarily directly available to the prosecutors. Once they know about it, they've got to go looking for it. Um, so what I do, what, or what, I, what I do in many matters, is immediately upon charge, particularly in EAGP matters, I have a letter sent off to the prosecutor that says, we, we, we believe that the following items, cops' entries, emails between um, police and various witnesses, cell brights and so on are likely to exist in this matter and we expect you to disclose that material as part of the brief prior to charge certification. Um, so you start getting it on the record as soon as possible so you can start engaging those ethical requirements for them um, at an early time and then if they don't comply and often you get this response which is go issue a subpoena um, sometimes you might do that if it's a discreet thing that you know you'll get, but often the other thing to think about is whether or not you just go for a temporary stay um, until such time as they disclose. And if you've done that, if you've set up 
the correspondence beforehand, if you've got the letters in that say these are the things we expect, give us this, give us this, you do it two or three times, then you've set up the basis to kind of um, do those temporary stays. And it, whenever you do those temporary stays, make sure you add in a Mosley cost order so that they're paying for the cost thrown away while you've got there. So um, that's the sort of thing that I do to sort of push disclosure along and, and always, well not always, but often the correspondence will include the reminder of the actual rule. You know, bar rule says this and you have to comply with it. Yeah, I've um, got a question from the virtual participant. Um, maybe um, a lot of what you just said probably goes to this question, but I think mm. it's worth um, putting a question on the record. It's from Lamar Mikhail. Mikhail. Sorry about that. It's, um, it's to the panel in general. What's the best approach to hold police prosecutors who are not legal practitioners to account when they fail to disclose in a timely manner material that may be relevant to the client's court matter? This may include criminal antecedents of the I mean, it's, it's not that immediately easy. And I mean, it's worth noting here, I think, that there's a power in the DPP Act for the director to issue guidelines to police who prosecute. And as far as I know, and I see at least one ex-police one ex police prosecutor here who might be able to enlighten me on this, but as far as I know, that's never been used. And there's not formal prosecution guidelines that the police apply that are available in a sort of public way, which is really a very unsatisfactory state of affairs, I think. But So it's not as easy um, as it is with the Crown in terms of, I suppose, making a complaint to a superior with reference to, um, to a guideline that's been breached. But yeah, I would say in the first instance, I mean, I have often in the past, you know, declined to issue subpoenas in circumstances where, for example, you get a criminal record that has relevant entries on it and you need all the other documents that relate to it. Um, I would normally uh, be communicating with them. I would be asking for those documents. I would be raising it in court. You might be applying for a temporary stay um, if that can't occur. And I think the Mosley stay that Manny talked about is important to be aware of, and that's basically an aspect of abuse of process doctrine that says that there'll be circumstances where it won't be fair to allow the matter to continue unless the costs of the accused that have been thrown away on the account of the misconduct um, are covered. Those are the mechanisms that occur to me, guys. What about you? Yeah, look, I think this is an area where defence lawyers <clears throat> really need to examine their own practices because, you know, the point of this is not to pick on prosecutors. We've all prosecuted um, before and it's a hard job and there, are, you know, there can be resource problems. But I, I think defence lawyers do need to be a bit reflective in the way that they practise and not just resort to a subpoena as a first resort. Ordinarily, a subpoena shouldn't be necessary. The accused shouldn't be required to use a court order to compel production of documents to which the accused is entitled by virtue of the criminal proceedings being on foot. And as a first resort, at least, um, issuing a subpoena is arguably perpetuating further entrenching a culture of non-disclosure within our prosecuting agencies and um, our investigative agencies. So I think it's really important to be quite deliberate in what you're doing. Now, sometimes a subpoena might be the way to go. Um, it's certainly recognised in the case law that a subpoena can be used to enforce a disclosure obligation where there's um, a considered breach. Uh, but I think Manny's um, 
suggestion and there, there are some proformers out there in, in papers that Stephen and I and others have written um, sending off some correspondence, getting it in writing early on what you expect and documents that you know about that must exist because of the fact of the arrest or that must exist because of the fact of the forensic procedure or that must exist because of your client's instructions, um, yeah. ask for them. Do it in writing, do it promptly, do it early, put time frames on it, you know, please respond within seven, 14 days. If they haven't responded, send the follow-up letter and then turn up to court with the solicitor's affidavit attaching all of that correspondence and push for stays. Uh, you've got to, one of the problems in this field with, with pushing disclosure is that often your opponents, and particularly in the local court where the magistrates are busy, um, the police prosecutors will just speak from the bar table, the Crown's do it in the, in the higher courts as well, and you've just got to insist. It's like, no, um, we're doing this on the evidence, here's my affidavit, um, and we're going to force this to be done properly. Uh, and, I mean, my hope is that if we start doing that a bit more, will sort of improve the level of disclosure and not have to chase these subpoenas. And you all know that, I mean, you're all, I'm sure, experiencing you issue subpoenas and every second subpoena you issue comes back with this letter saying, what's the legitimate forensic purpose? And you're asking for the bloody notes about what the complainant has said or something like that. So we really, I think, need to be pushing back pretty hard. Yeah, Graham, and I think, there's, yeah. I think there's some institutional reluctance in our system, frankly. You know, you can read the decision of Chilby. Um, Tim McKenzie's, I, I think, is here as well. He appeared with me in Wollongong Local Court. We had the notice of motion. We had the affidavit. We had all the evidence to show the history of correspondence, the, the failure to disclose, um, entries on the complainant's criminal history, the long list of offences <coughs> that... Um, she'd committed relating to fraud, violence that was relevant to our self-defence case, all of this. And the magistrate accused us of attempting to break the entire criminal justice system. <laughs> um, and It's very fragile. And it went yeah. to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court vindicated the accused <laughs> and reflected that ensuring on the minimum standards... Um, f of fairness in a criminal proceedings is not attempting to break the entire criminal justice system and the police have to hand over the documents. And in that case, we got a temporary stay, conditional upon disclosure, and what happened? They pulled the charge. It's a good example, they didn't hand Shelby. the documents over. It's a good example, Shelby, of how difficult the local court can be as an environment in terms of getting disclosure. And it's interesting to reflect upon the fact that if you think about the famous miscarriage of justice cases where miscarriages have been exposed after the fact. They're never local court matters, hardly ever. They're always indictment matters, even though 95% of matters proceed in the local court. So when you combine those two things, that almost all cases are heard there, and it can be a very difficult and toxic environment when it comes to disclosure, for example, it just makes you wonder how many miscarriages of justice are occurring that, that are not being exposed. Huge topic, huge topic for us. I've got to move us on in the interest of time, uh, but we do talk about disclosure in previous episodes of The Wig, so if you want to check that out, look that up online. Stephen, I want to talk about the independence or the requirement to act independently, which leads to rule number 42, which you can touch upon. Just before we move off um, disclosure, can I touch on something that's tangentially related to it? We don't get conference notes anymore from witnesses as a rule, um, which is, in my view, ridiculous, but here we are. Um, but you can get them. Well, you can, but as a rule, you've you got don't. to keep pushing for them, though. Yeah, and, and the general argument seems to be that they're privileged. No, you can't have them. Is the first response. Mm -hmm. yeah. But then I think you move into what abuse of process potentially if you don't disclose them, in the sense that it could be stayed. 
But one of, one of the interesting rules that's worth bearing in mind is that delinquent client rule. So you all have this, you all know the delinquent client rule in the sense of you put your punter in the box, he tells he or she says something that's a lie, and so you've either got to tell the court that they've lied or you've got to sack yourself out of the matter. That rule actually applies to prosecutors as well. So if they know that a witness has said something in evidence that's contrary what they've said to them in a conference or previously, they're faced with the same dilemma. Either they release to you the notes and inform the court that the witness has told an untruth, or they should be pulling themselves out of a matter. I've had that happen recently where a Crown prosecutor stood up in the middle of a hearing and said, Your Honour, what the witness has just said is dishonest and we, we don't rely on it. Um, but it's something to bear in mind that that rule applies both ways. And so if you're not getting conference notes, but you've got a really strong feeling that you know, the witness has told a porky the Crown knows about, you should be talking to them about that and getting them to deal with that on the floor. Mm, okay. And look, you might not get conference notes, but you might get a new witness statement that discloses the substance of what was said in the further conference. And that, I think, would probably comply with the disclosure obligation. Cool. I think we had a question, but we might move to questions as soon as we get... We've got a, quite a full agenda, if that's OK. We can move on to independence, uh, the requirement of independence, if that's OK, Stephen. Yeah, yeah. So this is a bar rule which, in essence, says that a barrister can't act as the mere mouthpiece of the client or the solicitor, must exercise the forensic judgments called for in the case independently after appropriate consideration of instructions and wishes. So, yeah, that's a rule that applies to all counsel and sits in pretty obvious tension with the kind of practical realities um, of prosecutorial functions. So, for example, police prosecutors, as I understand it, are not even part of a separate command of the police force. They sit ultimately under the command of that particular area. So, you know, we've all experienced that issue of representations being made and they're ultimately decided by some senior police officer who's not a prosecutor and not a lawyer. And then it sits in tension, I think, as well with what we all understand to be the applicable internal policies of the DPP. And we probably have all experienced DPP solicitors or crowns seeking instructions on different matters that would seem to really sit in tension with this idea that they're independently exercising forensic judgment, particularly when they're making detention applications, they're opposing adjournments, they're openly telling the court that uh, they can't consent, but they're sort of not actively opposing in a coded sort of way. Interesting to think about how all that sits uh, with Bar Rule 42, I would have thought. Well, and also that Section 13 of the DPP Act provides <coughs> that... that that the director can give guidelines about prosecutions, and they do that. But very interestingly, it also says that the director cannot furnish guidelines in particular cases. And so, what seems to actually what 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 seems to be the reality is that there are these guidelines that are published and everyone knows about, and then there's a whole bunch of rules and I think they use the word delegations and so on that are not published that require. Crown prosecutors and solicitors to go back to the DPP to get instructions. Now, I don't know whether or not that's actually lawful in terms of whether the director's going beyond her power when if she's if she's actually directing them, giving them instructions in that way, particularly with salaried Crown prosecutors, whose function includes conducting the prosecution and appearing as counsel. So it's not just appearing on behalf of the director, but actually conducting the matter mm. themselves. So, I mean, I, I, think, I think it's a big problem. I think 
we waste so much court time because Crown prosecutors have to go back and get instructions on trivialities because they say, <clears throat> I've been forced to run this tendency, I've been forced to do this and that. Now, if I was to do that on behalf of a defendant, if I was to run an argument that I did not believe in, then I would be in breach of the bar rules. I don't know why that standard isn't applied across the board. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty interesting to think about it because I suspect if there was someone here from the DPP responding on this, they might suggest that unlike individual counsel who's acting for one client, they're a big organisation and that the rules have to be applied in this kind of unitary way that takes into account hierarchical decision-making and internal policy and so forth. But... I don't know. I think we would probably all think that there's something about the criminal justice process that loses um, its fairness and the capacity of the prosecutor to do it in a fair way if the person in the courtroom standing at the bar table is not making the decision. Like, can you have fair and independent discretion being exercised if in reality and practice it's a solicitor in the director's chambers who's actually making the decision? And I would, yeah, I mean, that's very much my view, that you lose some inherent quality of fairness that flows from having this independent and objective Minister of Justice there if it's actually not them. It's actually someone in the organisation. Or it's the crime manager. Yeah, or, or yeah, even worse, it's the crime manager. Yeah. Yeah. Um, might just move on, yeah, if we can move on to topic number five on part of our full <coughs> agenda, the failure to call exculpatory witnesses. Is it an obligation? Who's starting it off? Yeah, I might start off. There's a relatively recent case in the High Court of Nguyen and the Queen 2020 decision um, which considered a scenario where the accused had participated in an interview with police. Um, They had said certain things that might be considered to be admissions, but they had also said certain things that uh, could be considered as mounting a self-defence case. And so it was described as a mixed statement where there were some notionally inculpatory and some exculpatory things said in the errors. At the first trial, the prosecutor um, relied upon or adduced the interview. Uh, That was, I think, a hung jury. Then went back for a retrial and the prosecutor declined to adduce the evidence at the second trial, um, stating tactical reasons to the court for why they were not doing that. Which, which loomed really large in the High Court argument. I've looked at the transcript and what was the exact meaning of tactical reasons. And I think what the prosecutor would say is what they meant by that was that it was a legitimate decision on the basis that the evidence was not admissible and was not helpful to them and therefore they were perfectly entitled to object to it. But it got interpreted in quite a different way in the High Court, I think. Yeah, and so the High Court sort of analysed, you know, admissibility questions like relevance and so on, but then also really focused the lens through which they resolved the the key question by way of the ethical responsibilities on a prosecutor and this standard of fairness that they need to adhere to. And the upshot of it is if you've got a similar sort of piece of evidence, including your client's interview or something that comes from them, the prosecution, on account of having to put its case both fully and fairly before the jury, um, in order for that duty to be met, it's expected that the prosecutor will tender a mixed statement unless there's a good reason not to do so. And they went on and discussed some of those principles that 
involve, you know, prosecutors can make their decisions about how they run their case and they can choose not to adduce certain evidence, but it's got to meet a certain threshold in relation to unreliability and so on for them to be able to justify that <coughs> decision. So what about a wholly exculpatory heiress or interview? Yeah, I mean, my sort of understanding of Livermore was that, that it should be led as some sort of aspect of the prosecutor's duty, right, mm. uh, generally. I think applying the High Court's reasoning, mm. you could extrapolate it to an, a wholly exculpatory heiress. It's also pretty rare that an heiress is wholly exculpatory. That's true. I, mean, might yeah. be, I was there. It's normally a mixture, right? Yeah. Like, Usually it yeah. is. Or, or just by virtue of the way that they express themselves. Yeah. Yeah, like lies as consciousness of guilt is the obvious alternative. <laughs> yeah, but so there are some specific rules that go to this in terms of a prosecutor must call as part of their case all witnesses whose testimony is admissible, necessary for the presentation of all the relevant circumstances and so on, the rule goes. Um, so it's, you can pin it to a rule if you need to, but it's also part of that broader obligation of fairness. It is interesting that that rule is limited to calling witnesses and not necessarily material. I suspect, though, the common law will put it yeah. to all Yeah, material. but the police officer's the witness <clears throat> who then adduces the interview. You know, yeah. documents come in through witnesses. It's sort of a good example of how ethical... Like, ethical rules sort of have lawful effect, but they're not legislation, right? It's not some sort of a code. They are now. So you sort of interpret it in context. They're legislation now, although they're not a code. So yeah, like, they have legal effect, right? Like, they're made under an act or whatever, but... Yeah. They're not sort of... Like, when you get a discrepancy like that in a rule, you'd rarely end up in an argument about court, about the detail of the rule, because generally the policy of the rule is going to be the important thing, and it's interpreted in the common law context. Yeah. Yeah. Can we just move on to um, improper instances of cross-examination? Um, I'm familiar with this case, having just come off the evidence uh, course myself. So, uh, yeah, please take it away. Who wants to do that? Who's, who's in? Mm. Yeah, so this is, I guess... Palmer. Why would she lie? Type questioning. Yeah. Um, or why would a witness lie? Where that tends to reverse the onus or questions that um, impeach upon the right to silence. Why didn't you say something at the police station about this when you got arrested? Um, it's a good case of Palmer and the Queen, a High Court case from 1983. Sort of poses these two scenarios it's fine for the defense lawyer to cross-examine the complainant in a way that might try to elicit a motive to lie but it's quite another thing for the prosecutor to then go and cross-examine the accused in relation to explaining some you know absence of motive to lie yeah. um, they're very different creatures and the, the latter shouldn't um, shouldn't occur and I mean it's commonly occurring in cross-examination of the accused but I think the broader rule, is, or the rule is broader, Rule 85, a prosecutor m m must not by language or other conduct seek to inflame or bias the court against the accused. Um, in Livermore, which I talked about earlier, which I read this morning, there was sort of a whole, whole range of conduct, but there was this sort of repeated submission to the jury that uh, the witness who was in effect the defence case, I think it was a Crown witness, but it was in effect the defence case, it was repeatedly referred to as an idiot, and the uh, Crown was saying things like, we'd all have to agree, ladies and gentlemen, we had an idiot in the courtroom. Mm. And the CCA took real issue with that because of the denigration of the defence theory in this kind of use of language that it's just not 
appropriate and goes beyond this idea of full and firm presentation and starts to inflame animosity um, and ridicule and so forth, which is just the antithesis of what you want a jury to be doing mm. and so therefore Manny, the antithesis the of what a Crown should do. What's the remedy for Yeah, what do you do? Day? How do you police the prosecutor that they engage in this this conduct? Well, I mean, you jump up. doesn't meet the standards. In, in the first instance... Or you, 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 or you do sort of jump up and try and put your body between the prosecutor and the, and the witness or the court um, and, and try and stop them from body doing that. Body on the that. line, Manny. Uh, well, I mean, that, that's sometimes sometimes you, you, have, you might find yourself in an argument with the bench and with your opponent about what they're doing to your witness. Um, of course, if you're in the context of a jury trial, then you've got query whether a direction's going to cure it um, or whether you get... If, if there's sort of egregious conduct in the context of a closing speech to a jury, you may have to try and abort the trial. Um, but really, beyond that, there's, there's not all that much you can do. Um, I'm not the sort of person who goes around reporting people to professional agencies for their misconduct in that regard, but that's really the only other avenue after the mm. fact. But that doesn't help your clients. So I think, think it's important to be sort of aware of some of the forensic considerations too. Like like all of those sort of applications, uh, there's an expectation that um, it'll be made as soon as possible, that you'll raise the issue as soon as practicable, which obviously also has the benefit of stopping it. Uh, because if you just make a decision to sit there, then it could well get worse. Be aware, I guess, in trials, but in appeals generally, there's generally a rule to the effective rule four uh, that applies in the CCA. So if you haven't raised it at trial, then it's going to be that much harder to raise it on appeal. And the CCA is always going to take into account these sort of principles along the lines of, well, you know, we're going to defer to the people that are in the room mm. because they understand the atmosphere of the trial. Defence counsel was experienced. They didn't raise it. They didn't see it as an issue. It wasn't the main issue in the trial, etc., etc. So, yeah, get on the front foot armed by knowledge of the specific rules and the standards as they've been interpreted by the courts. Mm. Mm. And I think this topic really feeds into, you know, cross-examination but also unfair addresses. And the Gordon Wood case is um, a pretty good example of a long laundry list of failures by the prosecutor in their closing address. Um, You know, just about every combination of Thing, submission that you should shouldn't make as a prosecutor. Mark Chodesky did so, asking the jury to speculate, giving his own personal opinion about matters, misrepresenting evidence, reversing the onus by asking this long list of questions and positing this idea that the accused counsel, um, you know, listen for what the responses are from the accused counsel to my long list of fifty questions. Um, you know, why would Carolyn Byrne um, go and buy petrol and a Freddo frog before um, her death if, if, if it were really suicide? Questions like, um, how would anybody athletic or not do a running dive from the top of the gap in almost total darkness on an uneven ground into either hole A or B? All these types of questions that were impermissible. And... At the trial, the the sort of first approach by the prosecutor was to seek to hand a written copy of these 50 questions to each of the jury members as part of the uh, closing address, and that was objected to on behalf of the accused. The judge um, refused to allow that to happen. But then um, the prosecutor went on to read them out 
during the course of um, his address, very slowly and deliberately invite the jury to take notes and offer to pause for them to enable them to scribe. Um, so... I think in that trial there was also an application to lower the entire jury over the gap in a crane, is that right? It was, yeah. That was one of the pre-trial applications. I was the tippy to the, the judge in that and they wanted to divert all of the bus routes in eastern Sydney set up a crane, take them, take the jury down to the bottom of the gap, but that was, um, that was refused. That, Which is not that really relevant, but shows the um, enthusiasm um, and resources of the Crown. Mm. Mm. Um, can we just move on? With, uh, in the interest of time, let's talk about such scenarios that where a prosecutor makes an agreement with the defence and possibly moves back on that agreement. Any situations that come to mind? Yeah, yeah. So this is a pretty important one, I think, and it seems to come up a lot. And I've got a paper online about abuse of process that's um, on Mark's website, which, which talks about how you can rely on abuse of process doctrine to, to enforce an undertaking or agreement and to get a stay um, in some circumstances. Seems to come up a lot in the context of charge negotiation. So you think that you've got an agreement um, and you don't. Uh, but um, it can also come up, and it came up in a case that I did a few years back where... I think we'd been listed for trial on a 35 about three or four times and then got a 33 laid on the eve of the trial in the context of then a potential new charge negotiation process. And that 33 ultimately got stayed. And there hadn't been an agreement there, but there'd been a series of representations by conduct that we think that 35 is the appropriate charge and the 33 got stayed in that basis on the basis that through setting it for trial so many times, through all the different things that had happened, there'd been a series of representations which would make it an abusive process to now proceed on that different and more serious charge. Um, yeah, but the paper I did's got some of the authorities on how to enforce undertakings and so forth. It also occurs a bit, I think, in the context of agreed facts where you think you've got an agreement and you don't. But look, abusive process is not is not going to substantively help you in many of those instances. I think it would be recognised by the courts that agreements come unstuck sometimes. You might have a situation where a relatively junior prosecutor has made an agreement or the other side thinks it's an agreement. The court is not going to stay every matter in that instance, but you can certainly seek to enforce their guidelines as well. If there's been some breach of the guidelines in that context, that's a recognised basis for a stay or an argument for one. Yeah, so be aware of that. But, you know, at the end of the day, this um, is a negotiation. Often it's a process of individuals interacting. It's going to be often imperfect, but you will enforce some of those undertakings or agreements. In that case of yours, Steve, I seem to recall that they brought the more serious charge, but then they said they'd still still accept a plea to the backup charge. And so there was this real sense of kind of unfair pressure being put on the accused to plead to the lesser charge when they were facing a much more serious and standard non-parole period attracting um, charge if they went to trial and sought to defend themselves as they wished to do. Mm, Yeah. Guys, we've got literally seconds left, but I I did promise someone a question or a statement after. I just wanted to touch on our final um, uh, discussional point emailing a judge outside of the, the presence of your opponent. Yeah, this is one of my huge pet hates is when judges, associates are sent emails, usually by the Crown, but sometimes by defence lawyers as well, um, without getting permission, without talking to the other side about it at all. You shouldn't be doing it. 
when the Crown does it, you should be up them about doing it. Um, there's a case, there's a great case, I think it's Justice Kunk who did it. It's called uh, Tugrul, T-U-G-R-U-L, and Tarrant's Financial Consultants, number 2, 2013, New South Wales Supreme Court, 1971, where his honour just goes to town on these emails that have been sent to him or to his associate. Um, the correct procedure is, if that happens, that the emails, and this is set out in the judgment, the emails should be deleted from the associate's email account. Any hard copies should be handed back to the parties and the whole thing should be done in court properly. Um, and the, even when, and this is something the practice that I've sort of tried to develop now, is that where there are consensual emails sent to the associate about matters of substance, um, I try now to have printouts marked by the judge on every occasion so that the record's complete mm. and we know that's what... And there's not this all this backroom discussion going on that yeah. people don't know about. It's really easy to slip into sort of lax practices in this area. And I've always had this approach, and I think it's because I practised in the ACT when I started out, which seems to be a bit stricter to only ever contact the court if you've got the consent of your opponent, even if it's a pretty routine matter that, you know, where you think that they would consent, just get that... Uh, consent. It's also complicated by, by, on occasion, it's the judge or their associate more commonly who's initiating the contact. And I know there was a recent case, I think, that went to the CCA where that had happened. And I think the procedure there is to respond appropriately to that. Always include the opponent in the communication. Don't engage with it further if they're not included on it. Yeah, think, you know, These are basic things that you can really come a cropper don't comply with them. At this point in the conference, a question was asked about the Wiggs' views on prosecutors not disclosing notes of conversations with witnesses on the basis that legal professional privilege applies to them. Yeah, I'm not really on top of the case law, but apparently that is a valid proposition that those sort of notes are privileged. But I think the answer to that in a case where obviously they're important to get is that it might not be fair to proceed if you don't get them and you know the Crown might not be in compliance with their obligations if they don't disclose them. And, and those are things that you privilege. can engage with them on or engage with the court on, I would have thought. Yeah, they should waive yeah, privilege. Yeah, waive privilege. Because it's a particular context where notions of privilege being this complete thing are not really that apt, I would have thought. A Crown prosecutor who's prosecuting in a criminal trial of a serious matter to claim privilege, it's a bit different to the normal manifestations of legal professional privilege, I would have thought. And you've got recourse if they're not disclosing those things. I think it's part of the problem that Crown prosecutors have effectively been reduced to salaried counsel on behalf of the director rather than the independent Crown prosecutors that they once perhaps were. And so there's that, that I think, is the basis for the case law that says that the director's the client and so has privilege over what's said to the Crown prosecutor. I have my views about that decision, but that seems to be the law. Um, having said that, I don't see how ethically it's just not another version that should just mm, be handed right. over, whatever the state of the claim of privilege is. Uh, but there we are. There we are. Yeah. 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 Time. Um, uh, just before I ask the question from the Yeah, it's got an exclusion or provision. With all this pre-trial disclosure race being, a half-reasonable judge will bounce apart. I'll just say, what do you think you're doing the day of trial by Angle Gerrava? Just to add to that, Mark, 
that's that's why again if you so if you are doing that if you are asking for all of that and they are serving you at the last minute again you whack up a solicitor's affidavit with all that coro on it and it grounds the application um, i've got a question from virtual I think often that's going to be a circumstance where you just cop it. And look, I hate to say that, but if you have conversations with police prosecutors who tell you, mate, I know it's hopeless, but I've got to run it, and you start putting that on the record and talking about bar rules, you're probably going to diminish your reputation in your dealings with those people, I would suggest. And But it's going to depend, right? I mean, you might be in a situation where it's entirely appropriate you know, to raise that, but I just question where you're going to get with that if a police decision has been made to proceed with it, you've been told quietly by the prosecutor it's hopeless, I think you're probably... I mean, if, you're, if they're right that it's hopeless, then you're going to win the case and you're going to get costs. So. Mm. One of the things we haven't talked about is an application to restrain a prosecutor from appearing, um, which comes mm. up sometimes where there's an issue where a particular prosecutor has, for example, said out-of-court statements as a case about Margaret Kinnean, MG, where she was said to have... Um, made a speech about certain things that um, related to a case. There are other examples where that might arise. But I think you do have to, at some point, make a real forensic decision and think about the holistic interests of your clients in terms of mm. how you respond in any particular matter. Looks like we have some questions. Yeah, question there. Yes. Sorry, go ahead. It's a big problem, um, and it's part of the problem with this regime that is now requiring those sorts of discussions between parties, which is a great idea because it leads to efficiencies. But in the absence of hard exclusionary provisions where evidence is served late, our clients are suffering forensic disadvantage as a result. On the other hand, in terms of from the view, overall view of justice, either they can fix it up or they can't. Mm. And if there's no unfairness to you, as opposed to you just the fact of you showing your hand. I guess the unfairness is that the prosecutor didn't really pick up on the I think that's not necess not necessarily the type of fairness that, that's going to be recognised by the court, though. Yeah. And I, th I think it's one of those things where 
you know, this is one of the examples of how, you know, the forensic sort of judgment that you have as a lawyer really comes to the fore because it's one of the potentially unattractive aspects of the criminal justice system that parties can get real advantages by not flagging issues, by being careful in their discussions with prosecutors, by relying on sort of shortcomings in the case. That's just part of the system. If you start having full and frank discussions, then your opponent is going to fix things. I think that's just part of the system. I don't think the court's going to think that it's necessarily unfair. Not to say that there might not be a category of circumstance where that might be unfair in some way. But I don't think what you've described in terms of expert evidence kind of shortcomings is going to be one of those circumstances. I mean, having said that, I think if courts were harder on excluding late evidence, there would be more frank discussions between yeah. counsel and there would be greater efficiencies. But uh, question on that. Yes, thank you. Um, in terms of absent witnesses, um, we can get a direction when we're before the magistrate or the judge that the witnesses are absent and therefore I reckon that'd be pretty kind of specific to the facts of any particular case, but I can imagine a situation where you could legitimately say to a jury, look, it's clear on the evidence before you that uh, the defence never got disclosure of item A, B and C. That's something that applying the Mahmoud principle is something that you might take into account in deciding whether there's a reasonable doubt in this case. So, yeah, I would have thought so. Like, I don't think the fact that those cases generally apply to uncalled witnesses closes that category. I think that could equally apply to information that's not available to the court because it wasn't disclosed or for some other reason. You can, always, yeah, you can always cross the copper on, you mm. know, you, you just pull this up the last minute and it's devastating to your case and you've hidden it yep. and that kind of thing. So you can get it across in that way. I mean, a common example, I think, is the contents of phones. I think that comes up a lot. Like, you could imagine in a sexual assault trial cross-examining the OIC and saying you never got a cell bright on the phone of the complainant or witness A, B and C, therefore it wasn't disclosed, now it's not there anymore. And, you know, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you might ponder what communications these people had. Uh, you'll never know because it wasn't disclosed. That's something that might give you a doubt. Thank you, Mark. Oh, Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.